to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 103, an interview with Dr. Len Calabrese. So today we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic, and that's, that's monoclonal antibodies um, against COVID-19. Len and I were talking back and forth on the Twitters, and I thought it would actually be interesting just to have him on the show and hear his thoughts in full, because you can never quite fit enough nuance into 280 or however many characters it is today. So um excited to welcome Dr. Calabrese to the podcast. He's the editor of, of um, Helio Room. He's the head of the RJ Fassenmeyer Center for Clinical Immunology at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, and he's a, he's a great thinker that I think we've all heard a lot from him already, but excited to talk to him today. So welcome, Len. Happy to have you here. Hey, Mike. It's my privilege. I love your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind of you. So I, I'm just going to introduce this by um, reading the tweet that you put out. Um, and here's your tweet. You said, uh, in response to a paper by Jeff Sparks and Zach Wallace's group, you said, um, nice work again. CD20 depleting agents continue to mark a highly vulnerable group under hashtag immunocompromised umbrella. More evidence the FDA should facilitate fast track approval of monoclonal antibodies based on ex vivo neutralization. And I, of course, tweeted back and said, no way, no how. And we kind of went back and forth a couple of times. I thought, you know, I'd like to hear his thoughts in full. So, you know, before I talk about their paper and some of my reservations, I would I would just like to hear um, your perspective here on FDA, regulatory science and, and the monoclonal antibodies in COVID-19. Yeah, uh, thank you for asking. Uh, this has got under my skin. Uh, first of all, uh, you make uh, the point that I think is incontrovertible that, you know, while a lot of good things have happened uh, through SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, uh, those people that have been marked as the most vulnerable um, clearly uh, are uh, B-cell depleted patients from our diseases, MS, cancer, et cetera. And uh, while a lot of other immunocompromised patients are doing very well, this is a very vulnerable group. Secondly, um, we and others uh, demonstrated and, and feel quite strongly that when we had therapeutic monoclonals, uh, uh, this was uh, very impressive in terms of uh, their clinical efficacy and absence of RCTs in this. It, it, was, it, it had face validity and, and, and we were impressed. Then comes pre-exposure prophylaxis, something that in the ID world is, you know, highly valued in so many areas, everything from HIV prevention, uh, IVIG, um, and we were using it and people felt that, you know, well, I can't make a response to the vaccine, I'm being protected. And it, it was a transformative step in their, in their lives. And then iterative data, imperfect as it uh, was, suggested that these things were really working. Well, over time, virus mutates, got a monoclonal, it's only reacting to one, you know, epitope, and um, uh, ultimately became inactive and took it off. Okay, done. Uh, what, what's next? Well, that monoclonal, uh, the, uh, we'll just take, we'll just take the monoclonal in uh, uh, tixagevimab and silgevimab, Evisheld um, uh, to everyone who's not in the business. Um, it was FC modified, had a very prolonged uh, half-life, uh, hang around for six months. And uh, what the company was able to do was to take the framework, 
um, and insert a new, you know, uh, idiotypic region, uh, anti-idiotypic region, um, and demonstrate ex vivo that this thing was uh, quite active. And uh, I was thinking at that time, because I saw this data in a preliminary fashion, I do consult to that company. I said, oh, we've got it made. Uh, here we have this new, uh, new construct. Uh, we've already put it through an RCT. We, had, we know about its safety. All you have done is tweak the uh, complementary determinant regions. And uh, we've demonstrated, just like they've done for all the vaccines, ex vivo, that it had very intense neutralizing capacity. So I was floored uh, at, at initially that said, no, that's not good enough for the monoclonal. It's good enough for vaccines. Uh, we're not going to give them to humans in an RCT. We have mouse data. We have ex vivo data. Um, you have to do a trial. And if you will recall, the initial construct of the trial was they said, okay, we would like you to use uh, your new son of Evesheld, and then the other people will get Evesheld. I said, that cannot be. This is a drug that the FDA pulled off the market, and they're telling us to do a trial with a drug that only can harm, can't help, uh, versus a new drug. So I said that this, this, this can't exist. And after about four months, they relinquished. So now it's a placebo-controlled trial. So I, I've been on this bandwagon for the most vulnerable people. Let's use the same standards we do for introducing all these new vaccines, um, which you know, have variable effectiveness. Um, what precedent do we have for that? Well, I have been using IVIG since it was invented. Uh, when I started treating primary immunodeficiency diseases, we only had intramuscular preparations. And so we have this product called IVIG that we approve that is constantly changing. It changes from week to week to month to month. And you know what's in IVIG now has nothing to do with what it was three years ago pre-COVID. Yet, you know, we don't put it through clinical trials all the time. It's an immunoglobulin preparation. This is far more regimented. We know far more about it. Uh, vulnerable people who will never respond to vaccines are here. Uh, that's my case, and I'm still sticking by my guns. All right, this is fascinating. So um, I want to I want to parse a couple things you said, and I think that might be where um, some of our disagreements came from. Which is that you know one of my particular frustrations throughout the pandemic is lumping all of our patients into this immunocompromised bucket. And I mean, oh, we're talking me too. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, rituximab is clearly in a class on its own when it comes to ability to uh, develop a vaccine response, ability to develop immunity post-COVID um, infection. You know, and it's not the folks on rituximab are unable to fight off COVID-19. Um, there have been some interesting work on T-cells, and some of them still do develop an antibody response. And, you know, I, I do a lot of work trying to space um, my vaccinations to um, the appropriate time, et cetera. But um, yeah, so so my first question for you is, you know, who would you use this sort of accelerated approval for? Would it just be folks who are B cell deplete um, or would you think of this more broadly? Well, it, 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 you're asking a, the most important question. And certainly I, I can't encapsulate this. This is a this is a one of the real uh, cutting issues in uh uh, COVID-19 biology, immunology, and infectious disease, who is immunocompromised? 
if you go to the CDC website, they give a ridiculous definition of who's immunocompromised and said, yeah. maybe you should talk to your primary care doctor like they know. Um, I, I think that the immunocompromised state is best uh, articulated by the uh, IDSA. And they say, you know, it has to do with what's your disease, what's your treatment, what's your comorbidities and what's your age. It's not one thing. So, you know, maybe the person, you know, Paul Emery's done some very nice work in COVID uh, period by cutting down the dose of uh, rituximab and increasing the interval. So people may be getting 500 a year. All right, maybe they're not so immunocompromised, but I'm talking about maintenance doses in people of a certain age, uh, plus minus any comorbidities. You know, it's kind of, you know, I know it when I see it, who's at the top of this. I'm not talking about people on methotrexate, even though people can argue about that. I'm not talking about people on anti-cytokine therapies um, in terms of this. This population, which is three to 400,000 people are who we've been studying and we know are the most unprotected. So I'll just, I'll just go with the cream of the crop here uh, and say that, uh, you know, unequivocally, um, until we have a biomarker that tells me they're protected versus not protected, we can argue about the T cell thing later. Um, uh, th this is the group that, that has benefited most from monoclonals, both therapeutically, pre-exposure, prophylaxis, and beyond. So uh, after that, you know, who do you think uh, besides your rituximab patients? I mean, you take care of sick ankyovasculitis patients. Yeah, so I mean, I think this is a great question. And I've thought about this a lot because I have a, a moderate obsession with PJP prophylaxis. I'm thinking oh, yeah. about <laughs> another great uh, uh, white wine hand waving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But so, I mean, I think the rituximab people are at the highest risk for COVID. I mean, that, is, that, that has been consistently demonstrated. Um, so that, that, that group certainly. You know, it, we we have fewer and fewer people getting large, prolonged quantities of cyclophosphamide, but something in cyclophosphamide and a fair amount of steroids is quite immunosuppressed. Um, and then, you know, people who are getting steroids in general are um, probably at even more risk at a high dose of steroids than people who are on rituximab in many cases. You know, being able to make a, a vaccine response um, is a little bit different. Like the rituximab seems to be uniquely bad at, at dampening that. And then the, the third group that I, I have always felt like this and the pandemic, it kind of came out is folks on mycophenolate. I, I think mycophenolate is a real drug. And I think that some of the vaccine responses among people who got mycophenolate were attenuated to a degree that they weren't so much with rituximab. I mean, we're talking about it was worse, but mycophenolate was, it was in this like kind of mid range where, you know, you look at the response among people on TNF inhibitors and it's, it's basically the same. I and mean, it doesn't seem to be substantially different, but mycophenolate is kind of in between the rituximab. And there's a large group of people who don't mount a significant response there. And, and add to that, you know, you're on MMP and you have CKI uh, and you're a diabetic or something like that. I mean, that adds to a risk profile. So yeah, that's and, how we're and, thinking. Yeah, and certainly age. I mean, age with COVID has always been oh. the big bugaboo, but you know, I don't want to go into that. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right, great. So the first question I really want to know is who you'd limit this to. I mean, if this was something that was proposed as a limited response for patients who are on B cell depleting agents, I'm much more on board than this nebulous, the immunocompromised people, which I think is far too broad and encompasses a lot of people who frankly are at not 
any elevated risk. I mean, I don't, it's not that you're at no elevated risk, but no meaningful elevated risk. I, All agree, right, so with that. I agree with that 100%. And, okay. you know, right. we were also using it, you know, my center, we have uh, over 400 patients on IVIG, mostly for CVID. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it, until we can demonstrate that the current pool of IVIG is protective, um, these people have been quite vulnerable. And we've demonstrated that in our own work. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you imagine the pool of IBIGs increasingly having antibodies, but you wonder if it's enough? Yeah. yeah well, we're going to find out very soon. I think it's getting there, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I could imagine. That's my gut yeah. feeling. All right. So my next contention, my next, my next concern, and this is a this is an interesting one, is just the cost of this. So so what the this paper that we were talking about, let me run through this real quick. This is a cohort study by um is a good group of COVID researchers, you know, I think some friends of ours. Um, they looked at patients who were at uh, Mass General Brigham who got three doses of Vax and received immunosuppressive therapies. And th- their main interest was CD20s versus TNFs. They got 5,600 or 5,700 patients. So it was a big, big cohort study, retrospective look at how people did. And, you know, the, the, the headline data is the most interesting to me. And they said, you know, what's the rate of COVID breakthrough infection? It's about 20%, which sounds about right. Um, and then hospitalization for that, though, was not not that high. It was 1.1%, which is, you know, it's certainly that's uh, 62 people out of 5,781 that I wish they didn't wind up in the hospital. But I, I don't know how different that is from the general population. I think it's elevated, but I don't know how different. And then they, you know, death was even rarer. There was only 0.1% of people who died. And again, I mean, if we can stop that from happening, that would be extremely, you know, I mean, I think we're all super on board for that. But, um, I, you know, looking at their subgroups, I just wonder how much we can bend this needle. So, you know, the people who got CD20s, you know, there are 55 people who got COVID-19 and had a CD20 inhibitor um, exposure, and only three of them wound up in the hospital. That's 1.7%. And this is in the context of people having gotten three doses. You know, and today, the COVID variants are a little less virulent for the most part. Um, people have been exposed to more COVID, so they've gotten five doses of vaccine now, and they've had COVID once or twice, you know. And so I, I, I think that that number is only going down how often people are hospitalized for COVID. And so part of my uh, skepticism about this is just my sense that the pandemic is still very real and very happening, but that the the rate of bad outcomes is really dropping. And even among this group who are at the highest risk, you know, only only one to two percent wound up in the hospital. And if we redid this study for the next two year period, I would bet it's substantially under that. So what do you think about that concern that there's not a lot of um, there's just not as much. Uh, room to improve things because people's COVID outcomes have already improved quite a bit. It is a good concern. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm impressed with the reducing pathogenicity, whatever the mechanism is, uh, viral uh, associated versus a mounting host response to memory from vaccines and uh, hybrid immunity, et cetera. And uh, again, I really am focusing on those people uh, who I, I think are the most vulnerable. You know, I, they, they had a few score of patients. Uh, very few patients had ANCA in that uh, study. Um, you know, in a big center, uh, you know, we have over a thousand people on registry with B cell depleting agents and ANCA vasculitis. So those are the people that we're, we're, we're most concerned about. And after that, 
uh, you know, it's that matrix, you know, who's the person that's on home oxygen and, uh, you know, has got rituximab in the past year, maybe it's RA or something. I, I would add that to the vulnerability formula. So I, I think we're fortunately in this kind of diminishing group of highly vulnerable people, but for them, you know, uh, Mike, you've, you've got these people that have not lived a life uh, because they have, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're worried, they're uh, either, you know, heavily treated, unlikely to respond. Um, I, I think they deserve the, the, the benefit of the doubt. We need biomarkers to assess this, but, you know, the CDC tells you they actually prescribe you from actually assessing uh, uh, vaccine responses with anti-spike. So, yeah, here we are. Yeah, no, I understand that. I understand. That. I think that one thing about caring for patients as rheumatologists is that, is that these um, these societal choices wind up feeling intensely personal because you're not thinking about the number so much as you're picturing this person you just spoke to and you know people whose lived experience has been quite difficult. Um, okay, well, on that note, I have one final question for you, and I'm just curious to hear your thoughts in general on this topic. But then, as it pertains to this in particular. You know, I've been worried about the loss of trust in medicine writ large um, and just the, the legitimacy of um, public health recommendations. And I, I think it is just so important that people trust what we have to say. And, uh, you know, the vaccine uptake has gone down across the country as every year progresses. And some of that's maybe people being less worried and some of that's people being less trusting. And, and, and that that concerns me. And so when you start telling folks that we're going to remove a regulatory barrier to a new approval for a new medication, you know, they're going to feel a little, little concerned. And so I, I want to hear your best case for why we shouldn't worry about, um, this is kind of a dual question, why we shouldn't worry about approving these without testing, you know, the, um, the, a lot of the idiosyncratic vaccine side effects, which have been very few, very rare, really worth emphasizing, very, very rare. But things like the myocarditis risk in young men specifically, there's that risk isn't in other groups, remind everyone that. Um, the VIT that was seen in one of the vaccines that was taken off. You know, so there have been a couple very rare things that really affected this. And so I'm curious, one, how you're confident that this wouldn't have some unforeseen safety signal. And then two, if you're worried about just the societal effect of reducing regulatory barriers? I mean, you're asking a very important question. And, you know, I have, uh, I think it's time for a lot of reflection. Uh, you know, our vaccine policy and promulgations is now at odds with most of the Western world. Uh, you know, health systems that work far better than the United States, you know, are not vaccinating, you know, uh, six months olds for the you know third time or something. It, I mean, it's it we, we we have not reflected. We're doing things kind of you know axiomatically. At the same time, um, we are prescribing um, access to a drug and a class of drugs that is eminently more valuable, ex vivo, because it's a monoclonal. We know exactly what it's doing and has been put through one round of safety. So um, I, I think that uh, these things are at odds with each other. And I, I, I would feel comfortable um, uh, giving uh, a new drug uh, with the same FC construct to a highly vulnerable patient who values it 
uh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I wonder if there's there's kind of a way to square this, you know, where you are um, really making recommendations more complicated and more narrow, and you could gain legitimacy by being very clear about your presuppositions, you know, that we're, we, we think that for people who are on B cell depleting agents, you know, the regulatory pathways for this agent should be much less prohibitive. So otherwise we're not going to get them. Like there's not enough people on B cell depleting agents for these trials to be run every six months ad nauseum, you know? So, um, you know, interesting. I've kind of, I've and it's going to constantly like, change. We're going to be here yeah. six months from now yeah. looking at the same thing. So we're going to do another RCT and then another yeah. RCT, uh, but uh, I mean, safety first. I, I I agree. I think we we we, sh we should be doing that with each iteration of vaccines uh, in some capacity as well. I I I have discomfort with the uh, the rapid proliferation of these vaccines without additional trials. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think that um, I think that trying to find that right right point for regulatory science where we're getting things to people who really need them quickly enough while maintaining safety and and the legitimacy of our interventions is, is really it's a tough balance and probably a good place to end any final thoughts len before we call call it a day no i i, I a i appreciate uh, uh the pleasure and privilege to be on your podcast with you i i i love your work uh secondly you know this is really still the early phases of uh, some very important uh, questions being asked about how we will move uh, ahead in uh, this pandemic. And I got my fingers crossed that uh, we're going to continue on a glide path uh, and kind of get out of this. But, you know, it's hard to predict the future, as they say. <laughs> good final thoughts. I'd echo that and uh, echo that. I, I appreciate you coming on. It's always good to chat. So thanks so much for being here. I'll see you at ACR. Yep. Have a good one. Uh, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in and have a great day, everybody.